0: Welcome to The Responsible Podcast. Your host, Stanley J. Targos III, is the founder of The Responsible Brand and The Responsible Network. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Responsible Brand. This is Stanley Targos here today to talk about the questions we need to ask. And at The Responsible Brand, you might remember, we are the company and we're the culture and the people that are bringing responsibility back to financial education, to the financial decisions, actually bringing financial fluency to our everyday lives. This is a place that you can come and get some real answers, some real solutions, some real strategies. And of course, every once in a while, we get a little passionate, a little excited, we get a little... uh, Overwhelmed by the information and tend to speak a little faster, but we're gonna try and keep it on a good level today Because these are some serious questions that everyone needs to ask and the reason that I'm able to talk about these Questions and make it relevant is because I actually talk to families almost every day I still talk to families every day in in a capacity as a coach or a consultant or a success coach someone who's living and breathing and speaking everything that we're doing I also have a family who I care deeply about, I have a wife and a couple of kids, and we apply these same strategies to what we're doing around our house, so we're not just sharing something that you should be doing, we're actually talking about what we are doing. Because I talk to so many families, what I get to talk about and share is relevant because so many people struggle with the same kind of conversations. And the questions that we need to ask is a great topic, it's a great concept, because so many families and so many people who are very educated, very successful, might have a million dollars in the bank. Might be self-managing because they trust themselves more than they trust an advisor, or because they're being frugal and they don't wanna pay a fee, and I get all that, I'm not here to discount how you do it or why you do it. Regardless of who's managing your economy, we should ask certain questions. And the questions change based on the age of the person. If you remember, we help families who are just getting started. We call it the responsible launch. If you're right out of college and you're just learning how to manage your checkbook and get money deposited every two weeks for the first time, and it's more than just fast food money, it's real money to you, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 a year, whatever the number is, it doesn't matter. The questions that you need to ask are different than the questions that someone who's in their 60s needs to ask. But there's some commonalities that happen along the way that if we don't ask the basic questions we might never get to the right place where we want to get to. We, ne- we might never achieve the destination for where we need to be. So let's start by asking some good questions. So here's some questions that we need to ask. When do you want to retire? Well people give me Answers like, I never wanna retire. I wanna work till the day I die. Well, I love that answer. That means you're passionate about what you do. That means you love what you do. But let's ask the question differently. Would you do it if you didn't get paid for it? That's a different question, isn't it? I love what I do too. But I guess the question that I'm asking about retiring is, when do you no longer wanna work because you need the money? When are your buckets full and you could say, if I don't work, my lifestyle and the people I care about's lifestyle is not in jeopardy of being lost. See, that's a good question. Retirement's not a factor of age, it's a factor of income, it's a factor of assets, it's a factor of strategy. It's a factor of implementing what you've been working for and working towards. So I meet a 23 year old, they don't have to work until they're 65. They don't have to work till they're 70. I can, I can provide a strategy for most people in a 20 to 25 year window. I have a lot of people who I met in their 30s who are retiring in their late 50s because I asked the right question. You see, everyone else wants to tell you, you need to have two million, three million, four million dollars in your retirement account so that you can retire. You need to be over the age of 59 and a half because that's when you can access your money. You need to be at least 67 because that's when you can turn on Social Security. You need to be at least 72 and a half because that's when you get required minimum distributions. Well, those are all byproducts. Those are all symptoms. Those are all sidebar conversations that don't really impact the true conversation of when do you want to retire? When do you want to not work because you don't need the money? So the question is when do you want to retire? And I can take someone who's 58 years old who just paid for college and paid off their home or they might have a mortgage or they just refinanced their home, but the retirement account's not full. And we could put a strategy in place that gives you options in a 10 to 12 year window. I can take someone who's 50 or 45 to 50 and give them a 12 to 15 year window. 20 years or 25 years almost should be a guarantee. Almost because you never know what's gonna happen. Life happens. So when I ask people whether they're 23, 33, or 63, what do you currently have saved? What's currently in your retirement account? What's currently in your Roth tax favored account? What's currently in your non-qualified account? How much are you saving on a monthly basis? Is that a consistent amount that you're able to continue saving for the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years? At that point, it's just math. What's a a healthy, what's a happy, what's a conservative rate of return? Well, if you're Dave, Rick, or Susie, maybe it's 12, 18, 20%. I mean, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. The question that should be asked about rate of return isn't what someone imposes on you, But based on your timeline and based on how much you're saving, what do you need to earn to accomplish your goal? And I think most people would be pretty surprised to find out how low that number actually is. If you've got 15 to 20 years and you're able to save a decent amount every month, you might be able to earn five and a half or six and a quarter percent or seven percent every year and accomplish the goal that you want to accomplish. So you don't need to chase 12 or 14. People who chase 12 or 14 or 18% are in panic mode. They've talked to somebody who's instilled fear in them and said, you've got five years left to retire. You need to either save 100% of what you make or earn a lot higher rate of return. In order to do that, are you willing to take the risk to accomplish your goal? Well, I don't want you to take a risk to accomplish your goal. Because I can't control that risk. And I don't wanna have your future at risk on something that we can't control. So the question is, based on the timeline and based on how much you're saving, what rate of return do you need to earn? And if you don't need to earn 12 or 14 or 18, then let's be comfortable with a conservative return that helps us accomplish our goals. And if we want to get crazy and do more, let's set a different bucket of money aside that's the quote, gamble, unquote, bucket that you can go chase sexy rates of return with. But if you lose it all, it doesn't impact your big picture. So when we talk about rate of return, if you've got a smaller time horizon and you've come through some financial trauma and you've got a short window until you're ready to retire and your nest egg is shrunk, then let's scale back what your expectations are so that we're not repeating the cycle and creating more pain in the future because you think the only solution is to earn a higher rate of return. Let's be responsible about it and responsible towards you, your family, your goals, your outcomes, your desires. Let's not cause more pain because we don't believe there's solutions and options for us just because we haven't saved efficiently, we've come through trauma, and we've got a short time horizon. So let's be wise with the decisions. So what's the current balance? What rate of return do you need to earn? What rate of return would you like to earn? And everybody out there in the traditional financial world is gonna tell you, based on your risk tolerance, you should be moderate, conservative, high risk. Based on your age, you should be high risk because you got so many years to make up losses. Those are great industry-driven or product-driven or sales-driven conversations. I'm interested in a responsible strategy built around you and your family, which gives you different outcomes then what you might expect to find by Googling solutions. The next question we need to ask is, what's your ideal emergency fund? Have you ever thought about that? If you woke up the day you retired and had X amount in the bank that wasn't designed to work hard, it's not your racehorse money, it's not your fun money, it's not your lifestyle money, it's not your kid's birthday present or Christmas present money, it's not what you give to the church in your tithe, it's money that's there just for emergencies. And everyone's got a different expectation for what they think they need. I need six months of income, I need this, I need that. Those are great benchmarks, but what number helps you feel comfortable and sleep at night? Is it 30,000, 50,000, 100,000? What number gives you the comfort to know that no matter what you come across, you've got enough money in the bank to handle it? Of course, I'd love to have a million dollars too, so let's pick a number that makes sense for what we need, but let's make it realistic as well. But I think forty dollars to fifty to $60,000 that's sitting in an account that's only there for emergencies is probably reasonable. I love 100000 Because that might give you the ability to sustain two emergencies back-to-back in short order. But in the last 10 or 15 years outside of buying a house, how many times have you stroked a check for more than 10 grand? It gives you choices and options and flexibility. More importantly, it gives you the comfort to know that if something happens, you're prepared for it. If a family member comes and needs some assistance, you've got a bucket of money that you can access that doesn't have an impact on your taxes or your means-tested social security or means-tested Medicare or any other thing other than you want to help someone, the emergency bucket's there to help you or someone you care about, use it. It's not there to earn a 12% rate of return or 4% rate of return. I don't lose sleep if my emergency fund is earning 1%. My emergency fund is designed to be there, it's designed to give liquidity and I have access to it, I have other dollars that work hard for me. So what's your emergency fund? What's your ideal emergency fund and how do we get there? We're gonna talk about that in another podcast. It's called 18 to 24 months, and it's how you structure that build it, and take care of it once so you don't have to do it every five or seven years. Next question that we need to ask when we're planning for our future is, do you plan on living in your current home forever? Every people say, I'm paying my house off, I'm paying my house off, I'm gonna have my house paid off. That's awesome, how long are you gonna live there? Three more years and then I'm gonna sell it and move. Well, why would you take good dollars today and put them on a mortgage that you're going to sell the house with? You don't get more for your house if it's paid off when you sell it, do you? I don't think so. But the most important thing is, if you're going to live there forever, does it make sense to pay your house off? It might. But it depends on some other buckets. Is your retirement bucket fully funded? Is your emergency bucket fully funded? Is your long-term healthcare bucket fully funded? Is your kids' college fund bucket fully funded? Is your tax-free bucket fully funded? Is your tax-favored bucket fully funded? If it is, then pay your house off. But if you're paying your house off aggressively and you're gonna move in the next five to 10 years and buy another house, why would you do that? Doesn't it make more sense to have control over your cash today? Does anyone remember 2007, eight, nine, and 10? What happened to the values of houses in those years? I think they went down. If you paid your house off and you had $300,000 house and you paid it off and the housing market toppled and your house was now worth 150, you lost $150,000 that you would have had control over had you not paid your house off. So when we ask questions, we ask questions not only to be, we're not being irresponsible about paying more interest, we're being responsible for what's important to you and making sure that you have control over the cash when you're ready to make a decision so you can make the decision based on what you have control over, not what the market dictates in your life. It's fascinating to think how many people are so emotional about paying their house off and they're gonna move in three years or five years. How many people are so emotional about paying their house off, but they're not even investing in a Roth or a 401k? How many people are so emotional about paying their house off and they got three grand in savings and emergency fund total? Doesn't make sense, does it? But it's a good question. How long do you plan on living at your current home? Is it a forever home? If it's a forever home and you're able to get a a manageable rate of return or interest rate in mortgage payment, maybe it makes sense to let the money that can work harder work harder so it's not sitting in your house earning zero. I mean, is the only way to not have a mortgage payment to pay your house off? It's a great question. I'm gonna let you think about that. The answer is no. It's not. What if you were able to take your, your money and, and earn 5.15% in a guaranteed scenario for seven years? The money that you're earning might make the payment for the next seven years. And you still have control over your cash. What if you had a stream of income that paid you enough money to make your mortgage payment when the mortgage payment is completely done, turns into lifestyle for you and your family? See, there's other ways to make that payment without just... There's other ways to be payment-free without paying the house off. But those are questions that we should be asking. Those are questions that should be part of a strategy. Those are questions that should dictate what we're doing next in order to be responsible towards us and our family, towards you and your family, towards our strategy and towards our goal. Next question is, how much income after tax do you think you need to live on? Now, the strategy that people have heard from the 1970s says when you retire, you'll retire to two-thirds of your income, thus being a lower tax bracket. Well, if your goal is to retire to two-thirds of your income, or if the person who's teaching you to retire is setting you up to retire to two-thirds of your income, you might want to consider getting a new person to coach you. Because everything that I've heard, when I've been in front of the CPA associations, when I've been talking to people about inflation and depreciation and devaluation, and how much money you need to maintain your standard of living, it's not retired to two-thirds of your income. Your goal should be retired to 100% of your income and two-thirds of your tax. See the difference? Because if you're 55 years old, and you retire at 65 or 70, two-thirds of your income doesn't even keep up with your current lifestyle. Fast forward 10 years after that, you're now living on 50% of your current lifestyle because of time and cost of living. So your goal should be retire to 100% of your income and two-thirds of your tax bracket. Now how do you do that? How do you effectively set money aside to have the income that you need but pay less taxes? But I can't do a Roth IRA, Stan, because I make too much money. Hey, I get it. The government loves to put information out there and strategies that apply to you when you can't afford to do it, but the minute you have enough money to do it, they take the benefit away. So at the responsible brand, we give strategies, ideas, and concepts that allow you to have tax-free buckets or tax-favored buckets of money that help you blend your income when you retire so that 100% of your income is not taxed. Because the one thing we can't control is the tax percentage, the tax bracket. What are they gonna do with those taxes long-term? Do you know what your tax bracket's gonna be next year, five years from now, 15 years from now? Me neither, it's an unknown. But I do know if I have buckets of money that I don't have to pay taxes on, I can eliminate that risk from my future. And that might be the most responsible thing that I can do, is how do I disinherit the IRS from my income when I retire? Can I do it with 100% of my income? No, probably not. But can I start working towards having 50 or 60% of my income tax advantaged? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Next question is, how do you plan on taking social security? And I know a lot of people say, Stan, I'm 52 years old. I'm not gonna get social security. It's not gonna be there for me. Listen, if we've learned anything in the last five to 10 years, the government has no problem printing money. None at all. Even at the detriment to the people they're printing it for, they'll print more. So are you gonna get social security? My gut says probably. Will it be the exact same as it is today? Probably not, because they're gonna pretend to be responsible and means test it or reduce it based on your age. But you'll probably get something. And how you take that has an impact on how your lifestyle is long term. The benefit of social security is it comes currently with a cost of living adjustment. And traditionally, we've seen cost of living between 25 and, and 45 and or 5%. Every once in a while, we get a, like recently, a 7 or 8 point something percent cost of living adjustment. They know every time they do a cost of living adjustment, it has an impact down the line because that's more money they have to pay out. It's a complicated formula. Most people don't understand it. In fact, most financial professionals don't even understand Social Security. Most CPAs don't understand Social Security. If the person who you're talking to says take it at 62 so you can at least get some money in case it goes broke, get a new person to talk to, get a responsible person to talk to. There's a strategy. How do you take Social Security and when should you take it? It's not a factor of when you retire and you need that income. If you have other buckets of money, you can strategize and take Social Security in a way that benefits you and your family. The output that we should be looking at as a main factor is what's the survivor benefit when you die? If you have the ability to increase the survivor benefit by 10 or 15 grand a year, when one person in the couple passes away, should that be taken into consideration with how you take social security? I think so. Because when you die, you're gonna lose a percentage of your social security. You shouldn't settle for a lesser amount because you took it wrong. It's an opportunity cost that you pay for not being aware because you didn't ask the right question now we're educating and showing families how to ask the right questions see we're in a position today based on the decision we're in a position today and in a position when we retire based on the information we had at the time when we made the decisions but at the responsible brand if we give you better information to make better decisions you might have a more bright or shiny future you might be able to protect more of your lifestyle moving forward because you're learning the responsible way to make decisions financially which has been lacking for the last three or four decades from our whole country and the whole education system so at the responsible brand we want to show you and we eat breathe sleep and do exactly what we're talking about we practice what we preach because it works because we've helped enough families through the trauma of the decisions that were made in the past without asking these questions So how do you plan on paying for unfunded future healthcare? That's another question. Well, people say I've got a Medicare, Medicaid specialist. I've got someone who's gonna show me how to take my Medicare Part A, Part B, Part C, Part D, Part whatever. That is a great question, but that's not an unfunded future healthcare cost. That's your Medicare payment. Unfunded healthcare is the last five years that you're alive, how do you pay for your life needs? And 70 to 80% of the people that we talk to are gonna need some form of in-home care or nursing home care the last five years that they're alive. A majority of the people are not prepared for it. So we talked about building an emergency fund, we talked about tax savings, we talked about social security, and people say, the longer I live, I'm not gonna need any money because I'm not traveling. My house is paid for. I don't have expenses. I'm not buying new cars. Yeah, unfortunately, there's this thing called taking care of your health that's more expensive than all those things almost combined. And the cost of healthcare is not getting any less. And it's not going to get any less the older you get. The older you get, the more you need. The more you need, the higher the cost. The higher the cost, the more you dwindle your savings and your lifestyle money to take care of it. So the last five years that you live, if you need to spend eight, $14,000 a month for two to three years, do you have the ability to do it without affecting the surviving spouse's lifestyle? I get it. It's not like we're sitting on money trees in our backyard and just because we see a need, we can redirect cash to make it work. But we also can't not pay attention to what's happening with the people around us and prepare for it so we're not a burden to the, to our families. See, the last three to five years that you live, say, well, I'm, I'm not, bury me in the backyard. The Archie Bunker, Archie Bunker way of living. And if you don't know who Archie Bunker is, look it up. He's probably quoted all over the place for bury me in the backyard. That's funny to say, but that never happens. You know why? Because your kids will never bury you in the backyard. You're basically asking your kids to take the emotion out of letting you die and do what God's designed for you and and hopefully go to heaven. So we have to prepare for that. Well, I'll just move in with my kids. They lived with me for 18 years. I'll live with them for five. No. Maybe that's what your kids want. And if it is, that's awesome. But if your kids are getting ready to pay for their kid's college, they're trying to service their debt, they had to go back to school for the master's program, they're just coming off of being unemployed, they might not have the financial resources to help you even though they have the desire to do so. So how do you plan for that? If you haven't asked your financial professional, how am I prepared for the last five years that I live when I need to drop a quarter million to half a million dollars on health care? Where's that money coming from? If they stare at you the blank look, well, you know, most people die in their sleep. That's a, that's a bad answer, bad answer. Fire that person. 70 to 80% of the people are gonna need in-home care or nursing home care at an expense of a couple thousand dollars to several thousand dollars per month, and your spouse will gladly do it. But then, after you're passed and gone, and they did their best, and they're done grieving, and their lifestyle is suffering, because they spent all of the money taking care of you, which they will gladly do again, now that burden is shifted to somebody else. So how do we responsibly take care of that without wasting our money and our resources? The responsible brand talks about that. And I can't give you a blanket statement. Everyone go buy this. That doesn't work. Long-term care is not the solution. It's not. In fact, it's been so complicated, they've been changing the rules on the policies and people are getting statements that say pay more and get less or or keep your payment the same and reduce your benefit because what they bought in the late 90s and early 2000s hasn't kept up with the cost of healthcare moving forward and it's not reasonable. Your $200 a day plan is six grand a month, that was awesome in 1997, what's that worth in 2023? That means you get to share a room with eight cockroaches instead of two. It's not appealing. I mean, it's it's a problem. But we have a responsible way of attacking that and the responsible brand incorporates that as part of the strategy because we're recognizing that's a question that people should be asking. And we can't hide from it. And the day to solve it is not two years before you go in the nursing home. The time to solve it is somewhere between 23 and 60. And if you're over 60, you still have options, you just don't have 30 options, you got six or eight. But there's options. I've helped people who were in their early 70s solve that problem. And they always say, why didn't someone talk to me about this 15 years ago? Because the person was afraid to tell you about it. They were interested in, in providing a product or a solution or making a sale and they didn't want to disrupt your thought process and have you think about something long term when they can make a sale today. I'd rather put everything on the table and at the responsible brand, that's what we do. Put it all on the table and say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Mr. and Mrs. Client, here's the eight things that you're facing. If we can get one solution to take care of three or four of them and we stair-step it in order of importance so that in the next three to five or seven years, we eliminate 60 to 70 or 80% of your concerns down the line, is that the path you'd like to take? Most people, the answer is yes, but it all starts with the questions that you ask. The next question, is it important to protect the lifestyle of your surviving spouse? I know we joke and say, well, when I'm gone, I don't care. That's that's a bad answer. I mean, it's funny for a minute until your spouse looks at you and say, really? That's how you feel about me? Look, we need a united front, we need a loving family, we need caring, and we need to be responsible and disciplined. And if we do all of those things, we can enjoy life knowing that no matter what comes down the line, we're taking care of the surviving spouse who's going to take care of us for the last three to five years that we're alive. Doesn't it make sense? Doesn't it make sense to take care of the person who's taking care of you? Doesn't it make sense to make that a priority? Regardless of who passes first, someone's going to die first. We can agree on that. Is it as important to give the dying person care and comfort and empathy? Of course it is. But should we sacrifice the surviving spouse's lifestyle to do it? I don't think so. I think that should be one of the questions that we ask. How important is it to protect the lifestyle of the surviving spouse? Ask that question to the person you're working with. If they don't give you a good answer, find someone new. That's the problem that we're finding in the financial services and the, and the money industry over the last 20 or 30 years is they're so focused on rate of return, they think rate of return solves everything we talked about it in the past episodes rate of return does not solve protecting the lifestyle of the surviving spouse because when you're later in life you're not chasing a rate of return if you are you're sacrificing and gambling on your future who at 82 wants to gamble on their financial future probably no one no one even Doyle Brunson from World Series of Poker isn't gambling with his spouse's lifestyle money I'm not sure if that's his name or not, but he's the old guy with the cowboy hat. It's great to see him, right? It's great to see these guys. They've done something well and they have permission to go gamble. Everybody does not have permission to go gamble. And the older you get, if you haven't asked the right questions, the less permission you have. The more your budget has to be. Our goal is to give you options and choices along the way because no one can predict what's gonna happen one year, two years, let alone 25 years from now. But I do believe the more control you have, the less taxes you have to pay, the more access to cash you have, the larger quantities you have, the more income you have coming in, the better strategy you have on on the front end determines your quality of life on the back end. Last question, and there's many more, but the last one I'm gonna talk about today is, do you plan on leaving a legacy or an inheritance to your kids, grandkids, church, or charity? Is your goal to die and spend the last dollar? That's a risk. Look, you don't have to leave your kids $10 million and ruin their ability to have a desire to earn moving forward, but do you have a desire to leave something? Should you? I don't know, that's a personal question. But if you do have a desire, the day to plan that isn't five days before you die, it's 20 years before you start taking income. Because it's a question that should be asked. And the question isn't, as you're 45 or 55 or 60 years old and you're just coming out of financial trauma saying, how much money do you wanna leave your kids and grandkids? You're thinking, I wanna figure out how to make the mortgage payment this month, buy a new car, pay off my parent loans that I just got done getting my last kid through college, I wanna figure out how to build my emergency fund, have a savings account, do a Roth IRA, take advantage of the match on my 401k, and you're asking me about a legacy? Well listen, here's the real question. If you could leave a legacy without affecting your lifestyle during retirement, would you do it? That's the question. If you could leave a legacy without affecting your lifestyle during retirement, would you do it? For most people, the answer is yes. Does it mean you have to? No, it means you have control. If the people you want to leave a legacy to become goofy or not responsible, spend it. But here's what I found. This is my experience. And I've met with thousands of families over the last couple of years. And many families who are in their late 70s and early 80s. Here's what I find. In your late 40s, early 50s, and into your 60s, legacy's not important. Some people, it's important. For most people, they're trying to figure out how to survive. I get it. But the older you get, the more important it becomes to leave something to your kids and grandkids because it's what they remember you by and it's what you have to give them and that's the desire of your heart. So when you get older, I meet people who say, Stan, I stopped taking vacations, I stopped fixing the house, I stopped doing this because I wanna leave money to my kids or grandkids. So if you know that's gonna happen, why don't we just take care of it when we start planning? regardless of the age we meet and if you decide that you don't want to do it later in life spend it but it's really hard to decide you want to do something later in life if you don't have the ability to do it then you're stuck on this i've got this wish list what does it say the road to hell is paved with good intentions well yeah good intentions are great but if you have the ability to do something about it today i think you should doesn't mean the whole focus that we're going to have is on how do you leave a legacy to your kids or grandkids or the church or charity. You should do something if you want to. Shouldn't be the focus but I want to give you the choice and the option and the flexibility that if it becomes important to you the older you get you already have built in the plan and the strategy for how to do it without affecting your lifestyle during retirement. And the responsible brand that's exactly what we do. I love meeting with families. I'm gonna meet with someone who's 63 years old who's gonna retire in the next two years. It's not too late for them. It's not. I, don't, I know they got a good amount of money, but you know what's more important than a lump sum of money? An income stream. An emergency fund. If, if you look at your net worth as what you get to spend when you retire, when that net worth is gone, where's your emergency fund? How do you pay for your last three to five years of living for your unfunded health care? How do you access the money in your home if you don't have enough money to qualify for a mortgage? What if you need to move and a reverse mortgage isn't the right fit? What if you need to go back to work because you didn't plan the right way? I retired too early, I retired too late. What if your health changes? All the what ifs. Those are the questions that can be answered if we start with the foundational questions that we just talked about. So I love what we do. I hope hope this hit you with some good questions that you can go think about, ponder. If you don't have a responsible brand person you're working with, reach out to us. Ask us your questions, we'll give you some answers. But I hope you follow us, like us, share us with other people who need this information. I hope this impacted you in a positive way. I hope that we're able to Share information that makes your future better, brighter, and more predictable. And most importantly, I hope you have a great day, and God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. For new and relevant information just like this, follow us wherever you get your podcasts and interact with the responsible community on all social media platforms. We'll see you soon.